Oh, thank you, Bridget. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, November 19th, 2014. Uh, we have, uh, we're keeping a string going of, uh, of a multiplicity of, of speakers for our Grand Rounds and team, a team approach this morning. First, I, I think you've already all heard or gotten emails from last week, um, but it can't be said enough, it, you can't be congratulated or thanked enough uh, for the wildly successful Joint Commission uh, visit last week that uh, many of you participated in, and, and the, the reviewers just, the, the surveyors came away raving uh, about uh, how well we did. And, and I know that the ICN and the ward and the, the pediatric ICU and the clinic were all visited and, and, and did extremely well. The, the funny story that many of you have heard me say, and I don't, I haven't seen, we haven't seen much that is you know, worrisome actually. There was very, very little improvement that we needed to make. But uh, on Wednesday already, day two, Ed Marins uh, called me up quickly and wondered if we had any Chad ties to sell because one of the surveyors seriously wanted to leave the souvenir of Chad. So he did subsequently. So you must have been something great. So thanks and enjoy. Uh, with that, I will then wish you, because next week we won't meet, we will be back in December. I will wish you all a uh, restful and grateful Thanksgiving with family and friends. And uh, at this point, uh, hope that that goes well. We are going to have um, Ryan Ratz, who is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine, practicing in both pediatric and adult hospital medicine, start us off and introduce our visiting speaker, <coughs> Dr. Greenwald. Ryan? Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming on a nice, chilly morning. Winter is finally here. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to be introducing Rich Greenwald today. He is a bioengineer, a biomedical engineer extraordinaire. And before I formally sort of review many of his achievements and accolades, Rick asked me to talk to you a little bit to frame pediatric medical devices and their path to market into a clinical perspective. So um, these are going to be Rick's learning objectives today. He'll uh, be, I'm sure, discussing or repeating them for you on another slide. I'm just going to say that I am supported by the NAPDC. Um, I joined the NAPDC last year. I review grants. And for projects that get awarded, I help put clinical perspective on them and it supports 5% of my salary, and this is a completely public health uh, service grant, and it's sponsored by the FDA. So uh, a show of hands, how many people have ever participated in a clinical trial of any kind? Maybe you've enrolled patients, you've analyzed the data. So we're an academic medical center, a lot of people here raised their hands, more than 50%. And how many of you have actually participated in a clinical trial that was specifically designed to get an approval for a medical device? One, big difference. And this is pretty surprising because medical devices, especially now, are a really huge integral part of our practice of medicine. We use them every day. We are surrounded by them. And before I joined the NEPDC, I didn't know much about medical devices. There was actually more written in the lay literature. So Larry Tarkin in the New York Times uh, a year ago really succinctly summarized many of the problems and the issues that uh, affect the pathway for getting pediatric medical devices to market. And the bottom line is, I think as this picture epitomizes, adult devices don't really work very well in children. They're not always the right size, the right shape. And believe it or not, in class three medical devices, which I'm going to define for you in a second, things in orthopedic surgery, interventional cardiology, our neurosurgeons, 
virtually almost all of these are adult devices that are being used off-label. In 2010, the Cincinnati Interventional Cardiology Group uh, looked at how many cardiac casts they did in their institution, and more than 60% were adult devices, adult catheter devices being used off-label. So it shouldn't be surprising to you if you're using a device that's not optimized for your patient. We see higher rates of adverse events compared to their uses in the adults. And the article goes on to describe, well, how come we don't have more pediatric-approved devices? And the bottom line is there isn't much incentive there from companies, industry, to get those devices to market. There's a lack of market size. It's harder to do the trials because there's a smaller pool of patients to draw upon. It's more complicated. One device does not fit all. We have different ages, different sizes, different stages of development, and it's not uncommon in pediatrics to have to go back and resize or replace the device because it no longer fits or it's exceeded its expected longevity. And perhaps one of the biggest problems is we actually don't know in pediatrics what are the devices we really need. Well, this problem is not new. Congress actually acted on it in 2007 and passed the Pediatric Medical Device Safety and Improvement Act. And this led to the birth of the Pediatric uh, Device Consortiums, which Rick is going to tell us more about. And the idea was, well, how do we get collaboration between our academics and our industry? How do we get our great ideas to the market? So here, I didn't know this before I joined the NEPDC, there are three classes of medical devices. Class one, minimal potential harm. This is about probably 47% of all medical devices according to the FDA in June 2014. Tongue depressors, ACE bandages, 95% of these don't need to be regulated. Class two, things we use every day, infusion pumps, suture material powered wheelchair, your x-ray machine. And then finally, class three. These are devices that are either designed for sustaining life, a ventilator, hemodialysis machine, or something that we implant into the patient. Image of cardiac stents, cardiac heart valves, orthopedic hardware. So Huang did a great uh, sort of study analysis and looked at after the act in 2007, from the beginning of 2008 to the end of 2011, so four years, how many devices got approved for pediatrics? And he looked at class three devices. Why? Because these are the most intensive. They have the most approval regulatory pathways. And the data is going to surprise you. Only 25 medical devices made it through the FDA approval pathway in that four-year time period. And if you dial down a little deeper, only three of those approved medical devices were approved for patients under the age of 18. I'm going to say that again. In four years, only three devices made it through the FDA approval for patients approved for younger than the age of 18. Why? Well, the FDA considers patients younger than 21 as pediatrics something that we don't necessarily think of ourselves as pediatrics. And it's a lot easier probably to consent a 19 or a 20-year-old to participate in a clinical trial than it is to get a 14 or the parent of a 14 or a 4-year-old or a 4-month-old to consent. Of those three devices, two of them span over or younger than the age of 18, and only one of those devices was specifically designed in patients less than 18. And this was actually a bioresorbable polymer used in uh, post, or I guess during, cardiac surgery to prevent adhesions and is specifically designed for infants less than the age of one. Even more alarming, two-thirds of the studies, and I guess I should go back and let you know that for pre-market approval, 
uh, pathway. This means you have to do a clinical trial that shows your device is safe and that it's effective. And the humanitarian device exemption pathway says if you have less than 4,000 patients annually, you don't necessarily have to prove efficacy, you only have to prove probable efficacy. But of all those trials that were done to approve these devices, more than two-thirds of them were not randomized controlled trials. They were open-label studies. And we all know that these are not probably the best way to determining whether or not something actually works. Perhaps even equally alarming, if I haven't gotten your attention already, is what's called the post-marketing trial data. So your device gets approved. Congratulations. Woohoo! But a lot of these devices go on probation for a time period, and they collect more data. I like to think of it as probation. And they have to submit that data to the FDA. Is our device as safe as we thought it was? Is our device as effective as we thought it was? And when you kind of look at the data of those devices that were approved, the FDA required 19 of them to go through post-marketing trials. We've actually only collected data for 50% of those devices. 50% of those devices, we don't actually have the data to know whether or not they're working or whether or not they're actually safe. And this is a problem. There's a lot of conclusions that you can make from this study, and that is, you know, I think something as pediatricians we've all known, treatments that work for adults don't always work in kids. Same holds true for devices. <coughs> we don't actually test these products in our children. We don't actually know whether or not these devices actually are working. Hopefully they are. We think they are. But sometimes medicine surprises us. Yes, it's difficult to enroll patients, but that shouldn't be an excuse. That should be a problem that we need to solve. And uh, one of the interesting things that's come out of the past several years is, well, there's a lot of companies or small people who have great ideas. How do we get them to get their device or their idea out there? And this is going to be what Rick is going to talk to us today about in the NEPDC. But what's surprising, when you go back and you look at those devices that went for approval, 50% of them come from large companies who have large revenues. And a lot of these devices are really probably the company looking to expand their market share rather than getting that great idea, that device we need, into clinical practice. So here we are. Let's start with great ideas, because this is the easy part. Surgeons, people who do procedures, intensivists, interventional radiologists, our pediatric subspecialties, they probably have a dream list of devices that they would like to use. But the truth is, no matter who you are in medicine, every day you've come across something that you thought that perhaps we could do better. It doesn't matter if you're a medical student, a resident, a nurse, an LNA, the speech-language pathologist, the patient, or the parent. We've all thought of something that we could do better. Could we have a tape with an adhesive that didn't peel the skin off of our premature babies? Could we make a CPAP mask that fit that a four-year-old might actually be willing to wear? <laughs> what if I had a smart inhaler that reminded you to take your controller medication when you were having a good day or recognize, gee, you're using your albuterol more frequently, you're moved from the green zone to the yellow zone, would that make a difference? People are creative. There are a lot of great ideas out there. It's not so much our problem. Perhaps we should, in addition to saying, hey, there's great ideas out there, what are the devices we actually need and get people to start creatively thinking about those specific problems? But now we've got to move to the other side of the slide, and this is sort of the elephant in the room, the market. 
And as an academic clinician, we don't like to talk about commercialization. So uh, Christina Duhame, she's a pediatric neurosurgeon at Mass General. She is co-director of the NEPDC with Rick, and she calls us the yuck factor, or the yucky side of medicine. But the truth is, and we have to accept the fact that someone is going to have to manufacture and distribute this device. We need to partner with someone who has the, the resources to do that. And so we're going to have to partner with industry. We know that we're sensitive or susceptible to biases from industry, can affect our practices. So yes, we need to acknowledge that. But that shouldn't prevent us from working with them. And what has been surprising for me is I have, in the past year, started to work with people in industry who have great ideas. A lot of people out there in industry have good intentions and have good ideas. And we need to help them just as they are helping us. I also think that we have a duty to fundamentally change the way we think about the market, perhaps refocus ourselves. We're moving from fee-for-service to an accountable care organization. And it shouldn't be the market value is how many units I can sell at X number of price to generate a profit. That would be fee-for-service. It should be rather, what is the true value of the appropriate utilization of this device? If I get the right device and the right patient at the right size at the right time, can I improve outcomes? Can I decrease the morbidity and mortality of that patient? Can I reduce the number of times maybe they need to have that device resized? How do you put a price on improving the quality of lives of our patients? So we really need to fundamentally shift our focus. We're not gonna solve that problem today, I don't think. But I think for our trainees out there, this is a really important thing to think about. We are in a technological revolution. Medical devices are gonna to continue to become an integral part of our practice of medicine, and we need to change the model. Well, that's great. I got my great idea, I know where I'm going, how do I get there? Like many of you, I've never participated in medical device approval pathways, so I wouldn't know where to begin. It's really complicated, it takes a village. You need material engineers, you need your scientists, you need your clinicians to do the trials, you need the people in the industry who know how to manufacture things, you need to get approval, the regulatory pathways. This slide doesn't even include all the intellectual property components that we use today. And then once you get your device, you can't start, stop there. You gotta make it better. You gotta improve. As you get data back, you need to continue to reinvent this. It needs to be a multidisciplinary and integrated approach using a lot of people. And this is where the NAPDC comes in. So our speaker today, Richard Greenwald, he uh, got his uh, bachelor's at Duke. He got his master's at the Thayer School of Engineering. He got his PhD at the University of Utah. He has had a very successful career uh, focusing on sports injury prevention, rehabilitation, prosthetics. He, for many years, led a multi-center, multi-year R01 looking at traumatic brain injury. He has uh, more than 74 peer-reviewed publications, multiple patents, multiple awards. He serves on multiple advisory and counselory boards for uh, various groups at the NIH. But today, he's gonna talk to us about his role as the principal investigator and the co-director of the NEPDC, Richard Greenwald. Thanks, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come and share with you what we're doing at NEPDC. And I think Ryan just, just framed the problem beautifully from the clinical perspective. Um, 
we've understood this problem for a number of years from a device development standpoint. And now a question was how to actually implement some change, how to move forward. Uh, brief disclosure, I am president of Symbex, and Symbex is affiliated with the New England Pediatric Device Consortium as one of its principal members. Uh, the NEPDC is funded through a grant through the Pediatric Device Consortium Program. So what I hope to do today is to share with you some of the issues surrounding the development of pediatric medical devices for a wide range of applications. You know, if it's something that you're interested in, something that you've thought about um, and don't know how to do, then hopefully you'll, you'll leave here today with a little better understanding of that process. I want to share with you some of the critical barriers to entry, how, how it can be challenging to get into the pediatric device development group, and also to describe NEPDC's role in this whole process. So Ryan just, just shared uh, you know, some perspective on it. Historically, uh, since the 2007 FIDESIA law, pediatric device consortium program was mandated by Congress. And several of these centers sprung up mostly around academic institutions. And unfortunately, it has not yet yielded, after several years, multiple or many products on the market, consistent with the data that Ryan just presented. One of the big challenges with that is device development doesn't take a short period of time. And yet, Congress is not very patient. They want results. They want, they want numbers on a piece of paper. But we actually really just need to do it right. We have to continue the process and do development in the, the way that it goes. And also, it's, it's relatively limited funding. Um, only $3 million is available for the entire pediatric device consortium, and that's spread out over about seven groups now. Site-specific challenges that existed in, in most of these were often there was groups of clinicians together, but they didn't have the other requisite experience to translate these ideas, the engineering experience, the intellectual property and business experience to translate these ideas and move them um, to the next stage. So what you had in some of the device consortia locations were groups of clinicians getting together and exchanging ideas, napkin ideas. And, and that was great. And maybe they could get it to the prototype. But that's not what we're talking about. Commercialization is many steps after the prototype stage. And there are challenges along the way. They didn't have the right teams. And they were mostly focused on projects internal to their institutions. So we, we saw the, the new call for this program, and we said, I, we think we can do this differently. And, and we wanted to put together a multidisciplinary team, uh, a real true consortium of, of expertise that would not only be able to, to understand what the devices that the clinicians thought were most needed. And these clinicians are not just, um, they're across the board of, of who's working in the, in the clinical setting. You know, we need a group to evaluate the technology needs. We need to make sure we know what is needed. Secondly, we need to provide technology translation. Not just say, oh, you could talk to so-and-so, the engineering firm. If you knew how to do that, you wouldn't need us. Maybe you don't know how to engage with a patent attorney. Maybe you don't know how to go to the FDA and actually ask them, what class is my device? How do I register it? How do I go forward? So there has to be a team for those services. And finally, we partner here with TDI to understand how these devices can be tested in comparative effectiveness trials because randomized control trials in this population are really hard and they're very expensive and not every one of them is going to be able to get an RCT so we have to think of more pragmatic and, and challenging ways to go about doing comparative effectiveness trials and the FDA has become very open to that. Five years ago the FDA uh, was viewed as a the huge obstacle you know an impenetrable wall 
you couldn't communicate with them. They weren't friendly. They, you know, it's still not easy. But I can tell you that today, five years later, Jeff Shearn at the FDA was, was just here recently at Aaron Kaplan's device development um, meeting in, in Woodstock. And, and Jeff Shearn, who's head of the Center for Device and Radiologic Health, CDRH, where devices are approved, he was wide open. He was open to suggestions of change, working on how to make pediatric devices more accessible to the marketplace. <coughs> The team we put together uh, truly is, is interesting and diverse. Uh, we partnered with Mass General uh, Hospital for Children, my colleague Tina Duham, who used to be here as a pediatric neurosurgeon. We worked on a, the brain injury project uh, for concussion for many years together. We partnered with a business development group called CIMIT down in Boston. So CIMIT is well known for um, doing similar to what we're doing here, but for all medical devices, not specifically for pediatrics. Uh, for 13 member hospitals down in the Boston area. Uh, we partnered with Symbex. Uh, our group is a 30-person engineering firm that does product development uh, and business development. And we partnered with John Lurie and the group at TDI uh, for clinical trial design, biostatistics, and outcome assessment so that we could provide a broad range of services to the people who might come to any PDC. And this was very different than the other programs. We told the FDA that what we were going to focus on was end-stage commercialization. We were going to try to take ideas that had already been prototyped, maybe we're at the start of clinical trials, and help those groups get them over the hurdles and into the marketplace. Otherwise, Congress is simply going to cancel the program. And, and then less devices will get to the market. So just as a, you know, a small example, our experience is in uh, medical device development. We've done products across the board, but it, the key is understanding your market need. We start with a technology market assessment. We don't start as engineers with product specifications from an engineering standpoint. The first thing we always have to do is interact with the clinicians and those using the device practically and understand what you need, what are the problems with it. So at the FDA kickoff meeting, uh, Dr. Geiger from Michigan came and he showed a device he had to put into kids, babies. It was that long. And he was using that much of the device. But that's all he had. And he said, there's got to be a better way. So that's the problem we're facing. And you have to be able to do both the product side, but also the business side. It makes no sense to spend $5 million on the development of a device if the whole market size is only going to be $100,000 if you're a business. That doesn't mean the product shouldn't be developed. It means we have to figure out a better business model. And there are different ways of doing that through uh, nonprofits, through things like the Gates Foundation. There's great opportunities for developing devices and getting them into the marketplace. It's not always about making a ton of money. And TDI, you folks know about. So this slide is from when I presented this down at Brown and at Harvard uh, more recently. I think everyone here knows who TDI is. We benefit from advisory boards, both from a clinical and scientific side. Um, our colleagues uh, down at MGH, some up here, my friend Trey Crisco from Brown, and also Business Advisory Board. Both boards include people who used to work at FDA. So we have access, direct access, to senior people who used to work at FDA who can give us contacts and provide us uh, up-to-date information on things that are changing at the FDA. This is the slide that Ryan put up earlier, and it shows the innovation cycle um, this slide is actually even outdated. The FDA doesn't even use this anymore. It shows the complex web of, of interactions uh, that are required to bring products into the market. I want to show you two different ways to look at this, though, because we've, we've started to look at this a little differently over the last bunch of years. 
Basically, we look at it as a big superhighway. Products come into the front end. There are many ideas. But all along the way, ideas go on off-ramps. They get derailed from the process for a variety of reasons. It may be, after assessing the market, you find out that there really is no interest or need for your device. Some people have great ideas, and they, they think, you know, we all think our ideas are the best, right? <laughs> you know? But then as you go down the, the, the rabbit hole, you start to figure out, well, maybe not everyone else thinks that way, or there's other devices that, that might do the same thing. You might get derailed because your idea was already thought of by someone else and patented, and you don't have freedom to operate. So even if that device was developed, it couldn't be used. You might get derailed because it can't be built. We do something after we have the market need, we define something called a product requirements document. How do you build it? Well, if the market will only bear, if the only way you're going to get it into the hospital um, is if it's $9 in cost to the hospital and your device costs $16, you're in the wrong place. I have to go back to the drawing board. It has to be economically viable, typically. You might get derailed there. And then, and only then, do you get what is typically called the valley of death. How many of you have heard that term before? <laughs> the valley of death is what's known as the funding gap when most devices and device companies fail. They get all the way through those trials and then the FDA put, says, oh, you have to do nine more clinical trials and that'll only cost you about $26 million. And then the venture capital community looks at them and says, well, we don't think we can make that much money. You're in the valley of death. Okay? And there are successes, though. I wanted, you, know, you do see some of them kicking out the other end, but it's only one lane out of the eight or nine lanes that started. Um, and, and there are various other valleys of de death, too. Uh, both from your device doesn't work when it does the clinical trial. That happens too once in a while. So this is now putting it back in the framework that, that people are more familiar. The university-based, uh, institutional-based R01 mechanisms are on the left. Uh, and then all these other questions about technology assessment, technology development, validation studies, cost effectiveness, not just comparative effectiveness, but cost effectiveness. Those are typically referred to as the valley of death. They cost a lot of money, and they're not typically paid for by the NIH funding. My colleague and friend, Bob Dean, many of you may know him, Bob from the Upper Valley. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's been developing companies, including Criari and Hypertherm, and uh, was my original partner in Simbex. He simplified the product development process to a very simple series of steps, and he's right. So there's a market need. Great. Then you need someone crazy enough to pursue it for a long time. So if any of you are thinking of doing this, do you have that crazy streak in you? Hope so. Then there's an invention, and then there's a period of chaos. Then you got to prove it. You do some prototyping, you do some playing, and then you run out of money. That's pretty common. That, that leads to more chaos. Um, and, and you see here, there's Bob on the right, but below him is the typical problem of the crazy entrepreneur. There's my colleague Trey Crisco and I um, working on our helmet telemetry system, which measures head impacts in sports you can't get graduate students or medical residents to hit each other in the head. <laughs> so you do it yourself. <laughs> Trey was a football player. He hits really hard. So I, for the first couple of years, I had to let him hit me in the head, and then I'd walk around going, oh, what am I doing? And then as I went around to sell the system once it got commercialized, basically I was running around the country smacking my head into walls, convincing people that the beeper would go off across the room. <laughs> so it was light, hard really hard, beeper would go off, and they say, it works. <laughs> <laughs> Fanatic entrepreneurs, you got to have it. Uh, and then eventually you either commercialize or fail. But this is another way to look at that process in a much simplified fashion. We do want to create a distinction, though, between technology transfer, which is often talked about in the institutional setting, is the, the legal aspects of, 
um, getting the device. So if you have an invention and you work here, you're probably obligated to share that with uh, whoever is employing you and report that, and they would have to help you go through a process to get it translated. If you want intellectual property, it would be owned by this institution. That's different than entrepreneurship, which is the whole business of starting a company, um, targeting it for market, getting it built, and selling and distributing it, along with making the product better and keeping track of it for the FDA. A lot of paperwork involved in post-market surveillance and, and things along those lines. We created NEPDC to help with that process. Again, many people, doesn't sound, have any of you developed a product before? Anyone interested in developing products? Okay. So we, we often find that residents, nurses, doctors have great ideas, but they're afraid to share them. They don't know where to go. We hope if you have an idea for the pediatric market, you'll call us and ask for help. We'll, we'll try to help you. We are focused more on the end stage idea, but that doesn't mean we don't want the napkin ideas and encourage them and encourage you on how to take them to the next step and the next step partner you with people who do this for a living and who might be interested in helping you. Our method is fairly simple. Up in the upper left, we have ideas and we have to get them into a funnel. So we created a website, a portal where you could go and just actually for with 300 words, which is a paragraph, type in your idea. And then we would say, oh, now we understand what you're doing. Very clearly, we do not want your intellectual property. We're a nonprofit. We're funded by the FDA. We're here to help, so we do not want to take people's ideas, and we state that clearly on our website. So the intellectual property resides with the person whose idea it was. You put it in, your idea, and if we say, that's a pediatric device that meets our criteria, then we ask you for more information. And if it's a series of questions you know, on the web, short paragraphs, and if you find yourself challenged by answering those, then either it's good time to get help from someone else, or to call us up and, and speak to someone like Erica. I want to introduce Erica Fonin. She's our uh, NEPDC administrator, and she'll help guide you through the process. She's really good at helping navigate these, uh, these tasks of getting the, the information in and then giving you feedback after we've grown it. Our ideas then come in, and they're reviewed by our consortium partners. And this is where we think we have the greatest value add. We're reviewing ideas with, uh, in a room where there's surgeons, there's um, uh, clinicians, there's expertise in engineering, business, regulatory, all sitting around the table or on the conference call, and you get feedback. We, we learn something from each other every day. When I started working with Dr. Duhame, she knew nothing about devices. She didn't even care about devices. She, she didn't even think about it. Now, when you give her a problem, she chews on it. She goes home at night, she thinks about it, and she comes back the next day, and she goes, you know, I really want to talk to five of my friends. And we go through this little networking game, and we find out what other people think very quickly. And it's, you know, that's the equivalent of a $50,000 focus group, by the way. So what we're doing is we're first getting these ideas in, reviewing them, feeding back, and then we have the ability to actually provide funds. We have limited funds. It's about $150,000 a year that we can give out in small grant awards or larger grant awards. But it's not just the, the cash. That, that's provided. We also provide in-kind service. So with a award of, say, $10,000, we also will uh, provide 40 hours of in-kind service. And for a $50,000 award, we'll provide to, up to 200 hours of in-kind service. And 200 hours of, of expert services in these areas goes a long way. The application and review process, as I said, is pretty simple. It's a two-phase process. 
the idea is to, to limit time on your side and also to help us get the information as, as best need. And we try to get experts who have domain experience. So if we're talking about, uh, uh, for example, uh, support surfaces um, for in the NICU, we want to go to the NICU and find out what problems people are having with pe pediatric pressure ulcers in the NICU. If we, you know, I could give a million examples. Everyone who submits to us gets written feedback. We provide the comments back, and we hope that those are a good uh, way to start and move forward in the process. Um, some people don't like the feedback. Clinicians in general don't like being told no. They don't like being told that their ideas may not um, you know, meet certain hurdles. But we always try to give constructive feedback that will allow you to ask more questions, and then we remain available to help and answer uh, to move it forward as well. I just mentioned uh, you know, this, this way we do it. The idea is baby steps. Each little bit uh, helps projects along. $10,000 in 40 hours can help groups go from uh, a very stuck place in their development to where they could then apply for additional funding. There are funds available. There's a program. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Small Business Innovation Research or SBIR program that exists at NIH, NSF, Department of Defense. This is non-dilutive money. This is up to $1,500,000 for projects for development, and it's, it's basically free if you apply for it and get it. There's a whole different parallel track of funding uh, available besides the normal R01, K, and other R mechanisms that are available. So we try to bring projects in, those that get selected, and it is a very competitive process. Uh, we only can give away several awards a year. So we're giving away these seed awards. We hope those develop into uh, projects that are more refined, and we can uh, then give them a, a full seed award and, and work with them towards development. What kinds of things can we do? We can provide engineering. We can do market assessment and help organize focus groups in the clinic. We can do business development. We can do intellectual property review and give guidance on how to protect your idea. Really important when selling ideas to larger corporations, if you create an idea and it's really good but you don't protect it, then they can just make it and they don't have to ask your permission and you won't get any of the benefit from it. And then you'll be really frustrated. For those people who have had that happen to you, you'll be very upset when your good idea that you presented at a conference um, is then being made and someone else is making lots of money. We can provide financial support, and very importantly, we can provide these regulatory requirements and contacts directly to the FDA. I have a typo there, you can see. And it's for a wide variety of devices, both implantable and not. Because of our limited funding, we're not going to be able to focus on too many of these class three implantable devices that Ryan talked about. Those typically have um, development costs and clinical trial expenses that run in the millions and millions of dollars. And, and so we're focused more on the class one, but more on the class two devices. Uh, which often have a regulatory pathway called the 510K, which means there's another device that's essentially similar, and what you have to prove is substantial equivalence to that device, and then you can get it approved by the FDA. So there are pathways to get there pretty quickly, and that pathway doesn't have to take years. It can take six months. It can take even three months under their expedited pathway moves right now. So we're taking people's ideas. They're stuck. We get them you know, what they need from... Uh, we don't know how to approach the FDA. And then six months later, they now have FDA approval. That's, that's the target. So a case study. I'll give you one or two case studies here that are important. There's uh, some, some folks who have a, an x-ray machine. That's a portable x-ray machine. And they wanted to bring it into the NICU. 
And then they, these were funny. They're two engineers running this company. They really hadn't spent a ton of time in the, in the um, neonatal area. And they thought that it would be really easy that we'll, we'll bring our portable device into the NICU and we'll set it up on a table next door. And they forgot to ask the question, well, how do you get the baby there? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just take them out of the play. <laughs> so they had to actually find a way. That what they didn't know was how to put their device around the equipment that existed. So you don't have to move uh, the baby in this case. And then they had a technical problem because now they had their their x-ray machine was now much greater distance than they were used to. And so they didn't know how to actually make the alignment correct because the distances were further and they couldn't figure out that technically. And now we had an engineering group. Well, I've got this group of engineers who dove into this problem with, they were excited about it. They could solve this problem. And using some existing motion capture, and it's called an inertial measurement unit that we use in, in many other uh, areas in engineering, we're able to help them quickly devise a solution so they can get the proper alignment, get the proper resolution, and get the images that they would need. So here's one where they, they were a business. They had already had a patent submission. They thought they had a regulatory plan, but they needed clinical input as to how to actually use their device, and they needed technology solution to solve the problem. And with limited funding and time, we were able to provide that, and now they're moving forward. We also engage in a process. So that was an idea that basically came over the transom. We have our open calls, came from a group that existed. But we also decided early on in NEPDC that we could provide value by uh, asking questions uh, where an identified need was brought to our attention or we knew of one. And in this case, we were able to identify the need. We reach out to advocacy groups, the Brain Trauma Foundation, the Hydrocephalus Foundation. Um, juvenile diabetes, across the board. We're trying, we figured those associations know the problems that are associated with their area and they could share. What do you need the most? And then we vet those with, with clinical input and we can turn around and issue a target challenge where we say, please give us ideas to support this specific area. And we did that recently and our first one was in pediatric pressure ulcers. So we sent out a call. Our colleagues in NEPDC at the Institute for Pediatric Innovation in Boston working with uh, Texas Children's and Cincinnati Children's, uh, uh, Lucille Packer-Bell, Stanford Children's Hospital, several of their member institutions had come together and they found out that they actually had a high incidence uh, and severity rates for <laughs> pediatric pressure ulcers. And they weren't all from support surfaces. A lot of them, in fact, the vast majority of them came from tubes and other things we put on the body uh, around fragile skin. But there also were issues with support surfaces too. So we put out a general call and we said, we have you know, somewhere on the order of $75,000 to give out for ideas and products towards commercialization for pediatric pressure ulcers. We launched that on August 1st, a call for proposals. We got submissions in and eventually we got, I believe there were, I forget the exact number, of, there were nine full submissions after the whittling process that came in and we made two awards not too long ago to give out um, one for pediatric pressure mask and one for a support surface. So here you have a company, uh, Circadians is the name of the company, and they exist already and they do um, masks, but they really, really need understanding for the regulatory pathway for getting their more cloth mask. We don't know if this is going to work yet. We don't know if this is an ideal solution. For those of you who, who deal with this, you might look at that and say, well, that's not going to work. If you're saying that right now, 
will you tell us? Tell us why. <laughs> After we're done, tell Ryan, tell John, tell Erica, please. Because we need to know why so we can help them. If you know why, that's, that would really help. Again, there's a company that has their intellectual property done. They're an existing company. They really needed help with how to make the products, how to test it, how to validate it, and then how to go to the, the regulatory body and move this forward. Um, our assistance plan, which is developed uh, by our staff, targeted for them, said, we're going to facilitate communication with the FDA early for you. They were really afraid to contact the FDA. So we'll set up the meeting for them. They needed some industrial design to make their device look good so that people would use it and not be scared by it. And they needed help uh, for clinical trial design so that they could prove it was better than what existed today. So we have our website, um, nepdc.org, and I hope you'll, you'll go visit it. Uh, it. We hope all the rules are up there. We hope the uh, inspiration to, to get you to submit is there. We, on there, you can find our grant application forms, information about our target challenges, information about all our consortium members, and additional resources that are available. <laughs> this is available right here in the Upper Valley. This is unusual. There's only seven of these around the country, um, and we have one here in the Upper Valley. <clears throat> there are multiple collaboration opportunities for you. So one, if you have an idea, we certainly want to hear about it. It's an open solicitation. We review them four times a year. And you may surprise yourself about, about uh, where your idea can go. Secondly, we're trying to identify needs. So if there are specific needs in your practice and the things you see on a daily basis or just an idea you have uh, coming out of whatever you know, uh, we need ideas. And we actually have a way for you on the website. You just click on Submit Ideas. And we will consider them for target challenges. We, you know, we're hoping to expand this program within the FDA. I don't think any of the other consortia are doing this where they're reaching out, trying to generate targeted ideas for, uh, for application. We can collaborate by helping you with your devices and, and grant applications, and Erica will guide you through that process. We need ad hoc reviewers. If you find this is an area that's really interesting and you want to learn more about it, uh, I don't know about any of you review for the NIH, but I got to be a much better writer of NIH grants once I started reviewing for the NIH. I learned the process. I got involved. I understood what worked and didn't, the buzzwords and, and what killed your application. So being a reviewer um, is not financially rewarding. It takes a lot of time. You probably could write it on your resume or your CV to say, hey, I'm reviewing for this uh, FDA-funded New England Pediatric Advice, but we need help. So if you, if you have expertise in a certain area and you want to tell us what that is, we will contact you when we get a product submission in that area. And finally, we're looking for partners. Uh, if you have other advocacy groups or you work with people who you think might want exposure to any PDC or how we can expose your group, please let us know. And we can post that on our website and our social media guru. I, I, uh, I'm learning more about Twitter every day. <laughs> So the questions we hope to answer for you are, what are the barriers to technology commercialization of pediatric medical devices? I hope you understand a little bit more about that now. They're, they're there, but they're also solvable. It's not uh, uh, the way that it used to be portrayed. There was a, I don't have the slide here, but they had a picture of uh, a huge mountain, and they called it Mount FDA. Can you climb Mount FDA? And that was how they explained the valley of death. I think the FDA has put in a railway to the top now. Okay, so you can get there. 
Um, but you need the right team. You really do need a team approach to this. And, and I think that's the trend in medicine. It's the trend in product development. Um, it used to be, when I was in the orthopedic world, uh, exclusively the surgeon would tell us what they wanted. We as engineers would go away and develop it. And then we'd, we'd give it to them and they'd try it more collaboratively in the 90s when I was doing it out in Utah. Um, someone had the foresight to put a hub-and-spoke type facility where research was right next to the OR, was right next to clinic, and was right next to rehab. And we were able to participate. The surgeon would call and say, hey, that device you built the other day, can you bring it into the OR and let's see how it might fit? Can we see that kind of interdisciplinary work really got me going in this area of trying to work closely with clinicians. And, I'm forever grateful for that because I think that was the, the best experience for me was to work directly in the OR and see where things were going. We hope you now know there's some resources available for you. And I guess we asked the question, how can we help you take your, your idea to the next level? So please contact us and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm sure Ryan would be happy to answer any questions as well. Thank you for your time. to show you today. This is a um, heart monitor, Holter monitor, that's fabulous. It has no wires. It's all sticky. It's applied to the left upper chest. This is a commercially available um, monitor that's made by a device company. Um, we love using these. There's great compliance with adolescents. There's no wires. They don't show as much. They've actually changed the color of them, so now they're clear. So great <laughs> compliance. But we're having a lot of pushback because um, insurance companies are saying these are experimental for kids under 18, and they're not paying for them. So therefore, we're hanging back and not using them, and we're getting, I'm going to venture out there and say worse data, by using the old-fashioned ones with the wires in the boxes. How can we get this approved for kids? <laughs> so that... That approval is a very different approval. That's not FDA approval. That's now reimbursement approval. And CMS and private insurers have their own judgments. That's what you're saying, right? It's not approved. It's approved for the FDA, by the FDA for use in kids. It's, well, it's considered experimental if you're under 18. We put them on kids, and then we, you know, process them. We get great data. We submit it for approval, and then the parents get stuck with a $900 bill, and we get nothing. Right. Maybe this is on a good day. The, the experimental <laughs> is an FDA designation, but it also could be that it's a, a reimbursement issue as well. It sounds like the insurers are using the out of saying right. it's right, experimental. That it's yeah. approved for, for over 18 by the FDA. Nobody bothered to get the, the approval for under 18, and so the insurers use the excuse that, well, it's off label. Right. Off label means experimental. Experimental right. means we don't have to pay for it. Right. Well, they do that a lot. so the, the company itself should probably be trying to understand. So here's where the rubber meets the road. The company's going to turn around and say, there's no market in pediatrics, and it would cost us a lot of money to go get that approval. We can't afford to do that because we won't get a return on investment. And your answer is, that's crazy. Yeah. And so, so, right. And so the FDA has tried to lower the pathway. I think that if the company, if they haven't already, they should be contacting the FDA to see what the limited data they need. What's the, the way to get there for under 18? Uh -huh. and, and 
I don't know if they've done that. I would imagine if they knew there was a big enough market and demand for it, they would. Um, it, it's a chicken or a chicken or the egg because they're not going to do it until the patients are going to buy it and the patient or and the clinics aren't going to buy it until they can get paid for it. Yeah. So the, the payment system's a whole different issue, as you know. And uh, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, we, we could improve patient care significantly right. if we got good data. Right. So. In this case, we would need to know the name of the company, okay. and we might be able to contact them with okay. you and say, hey, what, you know, awesome. if, if you're interested, it'd be fun to contact them and simply say, are you doing this for kids and why or why not? Okay. Then I can answer your question better. Great, thank you. Michelle, couldn't the cardiologist make an estimate of how many pediatric cardiologists there are in the United States and about how many times a year they would use this in their population? I bet you it's a huge number. Mm -hmm. Not as big as adult medicine, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. A very big number, yeah. and then you could feed that into the company. I mean, that doesn't give us any money or <laughs> helps you and your patients. Mm -hmm. Probably has to do. Is that a disposable device? Yeah, I would say yeah. And the other yeah. one, the other one's not, right? Um, actually, they're both use the minor C. The, the regular wires. Oh, the ones with the wires are not. Right. So therein lies therein lies the issue, because the hospital can buy it once. And pay for it, and then use it over and over and over. Yeah. Versus, but I guess I would argue that you get better compliance and better data. Oh, I agree with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> These are the challenges. Better clinical care. I'm wondering. Um, thank you for that talk. I know nothing about device development, but we have had at least one resident graduate in the past few years who's went on to critical care medicine and specifically to do device development, and she left this area. So I'm wondering. You said that the New England Pediatric Device Consortium is local here. Um, for our trainees who go elsewhere, whether or not it's California or Minnesota or Texas or Washington, are, you said that there are other consortiums like this. Do they have the same structure, the same format, the same objectives in terms of helping bring pediatric devices to market? So uh, the answer is they don't have the same structures. Uh, ours is a little different, mm -hmm. yet they all have the same mission, which is to try to help commercialize these technologies. Ours is not a regional or geographic uh, constraint. So if, if they wanted to come from California to apply to any PDC, they can do so. And we have many from all over. We even have uh, clients and applicants coming from the institutions where other PDCs are formed because they like our process a little differently. That's just That's ridiculous. Very often, the idea of a device to solve a problem is the easy part of it. The, the difficult part is changing the system, as was mentioned here. Has your group ever considered using the same methodology to make system changes? For example, we have a technology, the electronic medical record. Many people feel it's been a disaster. And it's not a disaster necessarily because of the technical aspects, but because of implementation, leave it at that, implementation and all the steps that go there. And as I look at that, many of the same steps that you had in that rotating thing are areas where uh, implementation of a good idea to modify a system uh, happen. There are a lot of death valleys, as you put them. But have you guys thought of uh, going into the area of system change? The answer is yes, in a different, with a different hat on. That's far beyond the mission of this specific consortium as funded by the FDA. They have a, a pretty rigorous uh, set of requirements for what we're doing within this program. 
what you described is critically needed. And I think a lot of money is being developed, is being pushed towards that. Um, but no, we, we can't do that within the mandate that we have from the FDA, though I think it's a wonderful idea. Yeah, I think about it a lot. <laughs> Ryan, do you have any insight? It, it, it's a really great question. You know, there's a lot of uh, partnerships here. So TDI is involved, for example. These are people who study healthcare policy. And we talk sometimes when we have these meetings, you know, keep running into the same barrier. We need to change the system. And so not only can I think the primary mission of helping these groups, can we learn from this process? As you know, academics who are involved, can we figure out how to change policy? Can we study this process? Can we publish about this process? And so I think there are people who are involved who two, three, four years, we can start saying, what have we done that's worked? What have we done that hasn't worked? How can we distribute what we're learning with other groups? Because that's going to be how we actually change the policy. And so I think for people who are really interested in that, interested in device development, this is a really good way to get involved, to learn about the process, to think about, gee, what are some of the parameters I could study here with all these grant applications that we're reviewing and study these pitfalls? If you're interested in policy development, we would love to have people who are engaged like that. There have to be new paradigms for understanding how to get these devices tested in the clinic. Doing a uh, multi-site, you know, 20, 30 site study to get your end that you need to satisfy whatever the requirements are for statistics is can sometimes just not practical in today's world. Having an IRB at every, you know, that's why we're going to things like central IRBs where you can get a single IRB to review the idea and do the work at multiple places. But hey, the local IRB is going to say, no, we know better than everyone, right? And so you're going to fight these battles. It's going to take years for us to get over that. But th those kinds of paradigm shifts have to occur. Otherwise, we're just never going to get these things through the process. They're going to get stuck. And we can do all the great work we do, but if no one will let them happen in the hospital, and try this, we have, we're stuck. And I think if the FDA lowers their barriers, hopefully there are a lot of people listening at the institutional level that are turning around and saying, okay, how can we work together to come up with solutions to get these products tested um, and proven and then implemented? So, in context, we're, we're very familiar with pediatrics with prescribing uh, therapeutics, medicines off-label off because they've not been tested in under 18. What, comparatively, is the percentage of devices you, you showed? It's essentially none that devices that have been tested in pediatric field. Yeah. Does anyone have any frame of reference of what the proportion is versus the therapeutics? Because similarly, their medicines are not typically tested in under 18 either. Seems like this is even less. The, the, there is a parallel institution at FDA that deals with drugs. You know, it's the, the equivalent to CDRH for devices. But, uh, they have the same problems. It's just a lot more money in drugs than the current devices. And I don't think we know. We don't actually have the data. So we don't know how many devices are actually being used off-label. Um, you know, I use the data for class three devices, which is a subset. You know, there's been 200 total class one, class two devices, 200 devices in that same period, but only 25 for class three. The reason that we have analyzed the class three devices is because we have data for them. We don't have data for the other devices. And so again, this is another paradigm change that needs to occur. We need to learn more about how these devices are getting through, how they're being used. That's a great question. That was 